Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12 this morning. Mark chapter 12. I have a friend who's about 80 years old. He's a really nice guy. I play golf on occasion. He's in good health and uh, has a great job, great family. And he was asked if he was ready for death, if he was ready to die. And he began listing off all the savings accounts that he had set up for his children, his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren. And what you'll find in our country, in our in our day, is that people who who don't believe in the life to come or don't believe in it very strongly will find a sort of substitute in the the continuation of their family. And today we'll see that that a failure to see the future, a failure to recognize what is in the life to come, will result in a wasteful living. And this is the uh, type of living that, that my friend, unfortunately, is a part of. We are on Tuesday of Passion Week here in Mark chapter 12. Jesus has been fielding questions. They were designed to trap Him. These these chief priests and, and rulers, religious rulers, were, were trying to trap Him so that He would back Himself into a corner or they could back Him into a corner so that He would answer wrongly. And then either He would be in trouble with the Roman government or He would be in trouble with the people. The people would have a riot against this man. So they were trying to get Him to say something that would indict Him. And He had just amazed the crowd with uh, His answer to the Pharisees and the Herodians. Last week we saw that they asked Him about, about taxes. What should they do about paying a pagan Roman ruler? A, a man who puts himself up as a god. And, and Jesus answers them wisely and, uh, and really doesn't tra- fall into their trap at all. Prior to that, he had responded to some, some questions with regard to, to how they were, uh, what was the basis of his authority. They were trying to indict him on the basis of his authority. If he answered that it's from God, then they would say that he was blaspheming. If he answered it, it was from men, then the people would... would, would uh, bring up a uh, contention against him, and he would lose his influence. And so Jesus has been fielding these questions here in the temple on on Tuesday of Passion Week, and he continues to do that through the end of chapter 13. Although most of the rest of this is actually him just teaching them, but but the the point here that I'm making is that the day uh, lasts from chap- middle of chapter 11 all the way to the end of chapter 13, the day Tuesday. So let's begin with Mark chapter 12, and we'll read from verses 18 through 27. Some Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and began questioning Him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no children. The second one married her and died, leaving no children. And the third likewise, and so all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Jesus said to them, 
Is this not the reason you are mistaken? That you do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. So the peppering questions continue, but Jesus refused their their claims once again. And what we'll see here today is that there is life after death. The Sadducees don't believe that. There is life after death, and, and as a result, we should live a certain way. And this passage, I think, is broken down in, in, uh, in, in two ways. The first several verses, verses 18 through 23, we have the loaded question. They, they put out this big scenario before Jesus. They even cite some Scripture from the Old Testament and then they put out this scenario, this bizarre family situation, and then they ask the question. That goes all the way through verse 23. Then Jesus gives his clever response in 24 and following. What I want to do is I want to go through the passage, make sure we understand what it's talking about, and then I want to finish with two questions. And, uh, and uh, the first one will be, and the most important will be, what is resurrection life like? And so we'll try to look into the Scriptures and see what resurrection life is like. And then I'll add another question that I'll present to you at that time. So let's begin in verse 18. We see the nature the nature of their question. Well, the identity of these questioners were some Sadducees. And we see right there in the verse, Mark gives us a little indication about who these men are. They are people who believe that there is no resurrection. These were members of the chief priests, the, the Sanhedrin, the rulers who would come and, and question. They represented the, the wealthier class of citizens. And we find out that they also do not believe in angels, according to Acts 23, verse 8. No resurrection, angels, or spirits. How, uh, conversely, the, the Pharisees believe in all of them. So that this was the other main religious group at that time. They believed in all these things. And so you can imagine that the Sadducees and Pharisees would have some, some heated debates at times. And so because they didn't believe in, in the resurrection, they decided to talk to Jesus about it because he was a self-proclaimed teacher. He was supposed to know all these things and he was supposed to be squelching all of these, these questions that were coming against him. And so let me ask this one burning question that we have. And it was perhaps another opportunity for them to trap him. They, uh, the Sadducees only believed that the first five books of the Bible, the, what we call the Pentateuch or the Law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, were the only ones that were authoritative. So you can understand that if there wasn't resurrection talked about in the first five books of the Bible, then that's where they would get their understanding. So the Pharisees would would uh, would go farther than that and they would uh, receive their understanding from other parts of the Old Testament. Now, the purpose of their question, I think, is not to help them to solve a, a mind teaser, uh, a brain-twisting type question. They, they, want, they really got this burning question. I think it really is to trap him and I think the reason is because Mark lists it with all these other groups who have been coming to him 
and trying to, to trap him in this way. They're trying to get him back into a corner so the answer is wrongly. They're trying to get Jesus to show the absurdity of this Jewish idea of resurrection. And perhaps they were doing it out in public, out here in the temple courts, in order to publicly humiliate him, to show him in front of all, all of these people how silly this idea was. Notice verse 19, the apparent authority of their question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. So he be, the, the Sadducees begin with this phrase, Moses wrote for us. So they appeal back to something that Jesus would follow, that is, the Scriptures. And they, they, cite, uh, they cite the Scriptures. They appeal to Moses' law of, of leveret marriage, which is where the, the brother would continue on the family name by having a, a child through this, this spouse. He would marry this woman and continue on the family name, and then the inheritance would go back to these children uh, through the, the older brother and so on. This was in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6. So they used the Scripture here since they, they knew that Jesus would constantly point back to the Scriptures. That he, he had a high view of the Scriptures. And so if they pointed back to the Scriptures, drew, drew out from there their understanding of this, this uh, resurrection or, or no resurrection in their case, then he would have to address that passage of Scripture. Notice the uh, hypothetical nature of the question in verses 20 through 22. First, in verse 20, we have the death of the first brother. It says there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no children. Now, the reason that they mention that he left no children because if a brother or if the oldest of the brothers were to marry someone and die, and he left children, then the inheritance could easily flow through to that child, particularly if he was a son. But if if not, if he had no children, then then the inheritance would, in effect, stop. And so it needed to go through someone else. So that's why they bring up the second brother. Okay, So this is perhaps a, a circumstance that may have taken place, but they take it farther and farther. They go all the way to the seventh brother. All six of the older brothers don't have children. The seventh brother marries the same woman and, and doesn't have children with this woman. He dies, and then the wife dies. And so now we have this, this hypothetical situation and, and their question comes um, their question comes in, in verse 23. And what we see here is it's really an implausible question. Verse 23, in the resurrection, presuming all this happens, in the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? The, 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 the reason it's so silly for them to ask this question is they, they don't believe in resurrection, right? So they're asking a question about resurrection in order to make Jesus look foolish. They say, if, if this supposed resurrection is going to happen, suppose all these people die, what's going to happen? Because now you can't give any favor to one brother over the other because none of them had children. And so, what is your response to this? And what they were hoping for was, well, actually, yeah, resurrection can't work. You're right, Sadducees. Now, this is probably 
a, an example that they had used against the Pharisees several times before. The Pharisees, not being as clever as Jesus, didn't know the Scriptures as well as Jesus, uh, they probably just answered, you know, I guess it has to be the older brother. That the older brother would be the one uh, who, would, uh, who would be married to this woman after, at the resurrection. But Jesus gives a clever response in verses 24 through 27. He does it by revealing their misunderstanding in verse 24. He summarizes what their problem is. Verse 24, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God? Okay, the main point that Jesus is making here is that you are mistaken about the fact or about the idea that there is no resurrection. So He says, this is the reason you're mistaken. He gives them two reasons why. And then look at verse 27. He brings it up again. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. Okay, Jesus wants to show them that, that they have a misunderstanding. They've got something wrong in their thinking. And his point here is that if you really understood Moses that you quote from, you would understand that there really is a resurrection Notice Jesus' two reasons here in verse 24. At the end it says uh, that you do not understand the Scriptures. Okay, there's one problem. Or you do not understand the power of God. So we have these two problems in their thinking. They don't understand the Scriptures that they quote from. And they don't understand the, the power of God. And now he's going to explain to them how, how they have failed in both of these ways. And so what we have in verse 25 is their failure to understand the power of God. Notice verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So verse 25 addresses that second point. They fail to understand the power of God. Verses 26 and 27 say you fail to understand the Scriptures. And now Jesus goes back and points to a Scripture that would have come from one of Moses' books. But let's look at this first one. <clears throat> he clarifies this truth about life after death, shows them their failure to understand the power of God in verse 25. Part of their problem was that they, they falsely assumed that there would be marriage in heaven. As if God couldn't uh, be powerful enough to, to break this bond in some way or to make the relationships in heaven to be even better than a marriage relationship. And so they, they falsely assumed that there would be marriage. So you don't, Jesus is saying, you don't understand the power of God and what He's going to do in the resurrection. And what we need to understand is that marriage doesn't have to exist in heaven. One of the reasons for marriage is to, is to populate this, the, the world, right? When, when Adam and Eve first were created, one of the commands that was given to them was be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But in heaven, there's no need to populate heaven, right? Because there is no death. If there were death in heaven, then the, the number of people would constantly be changing. But turn to Revelation chapter 21. Because what we find out from other parts of Scripture is that there is no death. In heaven, and as a result, there's no need for marriage. Chapter 21, verse 4. 
Let's start in verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. We'll talk about this later when we talk about what resurrection life will be like, but I just wanted to point out to you that in heaven there will be no death. It's similar to what happens with the angels. There is no death. Spirits don't die. And so the population of angels are the same. They don't have to procreate. They don't have to be involved in this act of reproduction because the, the population has stayed the same since the creation. What God has been doing throughout the human history is allowing humans to, to populate the earth. But when it comes to heaven, there's no need for it. That is, God ha- will be able to make our bodies in such a way that we w- will have... Uh, we will not die, and therefore we won't need to to bring new life into heaven. Now, what we need to note here in verse 25 is the last phrase. Notice the phrase. It says, but are like angels in heaven. Notice what it does not say. It does not say we become angels in heaven. Okay, so that doesn't mean that we become spirits. We have wings in some way. We can fly wherever we want but that will become like angels. That is, in our constitution, that we are not going to die. In our relationships, that there won't be marriage among us. And that is what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about our resurrection and our relationships. So why doesn't marriage exist in heaven? Marriage on earth was obviously to to populate the earth and because of death it had to be there. But also... I think it was for an exclusive union that the two shall become one flesh. And it was a, a picture of a perfect relationship uh, of what kind of perfect relationship there will be between us and with Christ or with us and with God. There will be this perfect relationship and, and in fact we'll have the same sort of uh, bound relationship with other, with other people in heaven as well. So the Sadducees' problem was, first of all, they failed to understand the power of God. They failed to understand that God had a way of changing things in the constitution of our bodies in such a way to make our relationships in heaven even better than what they are now. Their other problem in verses 26 and 27 is they failed to understand the Scriptures. Jesus appeals to their source of authority. He appeals to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, which they would have they would have uh, believed in. And so he could have gone to the prophets or to the writings and, and shown him where the resurrection, there's proof for the resurrection there. But instead, he goes right to their source of authority, the first five books of the Bible. Because that is obviously still the authority of God, but he also wanted to show their foolishness, the fact that you don't really understand these scriptures that you speak of. Now, he couldn't cite a chapter and verse because during his time there were no chapters and verses. Those didn't come till 1,500 years after he died. So instead, he calls it, in verse 26, the, the passage about the burning bush. Let's read verse 26. 
But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? And then, he, after quoting this, he says, here's your reason for your faulty thinking. Let me take you back to the passage of the burning bush. He quotes it for them. And then he explains it to them in verse 27. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. He is not the God of, the, of dead Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but the God of living Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, where were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob during the time of the burning bush? Where were they? They weren't on earth anymore, right? They were already they were already in paradise. The burning bush took place around 1500 BC during Moses' time, and these men died apparently several hundred years earlier. And so, what what Moses didn't say, or what God didn't say at the burning bush, was this: I was the God of these men, these dead men, these people who are buried. That's not what he said. He said, I am the God of these men. These men who are now living. These men who are still living. See, to you, Moses, these people are dead. But to me, they still live. And that's because there is life after death. And so what Jesus was showing them is that they, they thought that this promise was, was regarding uh, a great nation which was only meant to give to their children so that, so that when Abraham passed off the scene and then Isaac passed off the scene and then, then Jacob and then all of his sons, they continued on with life through their children. Do you see? And so because they didn't believe in life after death, they perpetuated this, this promise that was given to Abraham through their children. But Jesus was saying, no, their promise is, is much more than that. Because God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You see, Sadducees, you need to examine the Scriptures more carefully. Think about how they relate to, to life and life after death before you make such a claim that, that says that Scriptures don't teach that there is life after death. Because if physical death were final both for them and for us, then death would still have its sting. And yet 1 Corinthians 15, verse 56, tells us that the sting of death is sin. And, that, and then later on it says that the, that the sting of death is gone. Because Jesus Christ has raised from the dead, that sting, of, that sting is gone. So we have for us uh, a, an example or... A proof from the Scriptures and then an explanation that we serve a God not of the dead, but of the living. And aren't you thankful that God is not a God of the dead? That He lives and He exists among people who are still living. Death may change our, our physical relationship to the world, but it will not change our spiritual relationship with God. And that means that there is nothing that can come between us and God. There is nothing that can come between us and God, not even death. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Verse 
Romans chapter 8, verse 38. Notice all these great powers. And notice Paul's point beginning in verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can sever our relationship with God. When we go from this earth, we go immediately into the presence of God because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And and so, so Jesus rebukes them, refutes their question, and He finishes up with the statement, you are greatly mistaken. You don't understand neither the power of God nor the Scriptures. And if you did, you would believe in the resurrection. But a question I want to ask for us is, what will resurrection life be like? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we saw a little bit about what resurrection life will be like. That it will, it will change the relationships that we have. It will, uh, there will be no death. Paul explains it a little further. First thing that we need to understand about our resurrection body is that it is, it is immortal. We saw that uh, with Jesus, with His statement that God is not the God of the dead. But look at what Paul says here in Verse 42, So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. So although now we have bodies that are perishable, you know that if you've had any sort of sickness or extended illness, you know that your body is not perfect. It's not immortal. You know that if you've experienced the loss of a loved one that the body is not immortal, but one day it will be. When we take on immortality, but not only will it be immortal that it won't die, verse 43 tells us that it will be glorious and powerful. Verse 43, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. God will make our bodies different than they are now. Just as Jesus was raised bodily from the dead, so also our bodies will be raised from the dead. Jesus is the first fruit of our resurrection. He is the first to be raised. Now, now you may be thinking, well, how can a body be raised? We, we often think of bodies being buried in a grave, but, but how can a body be raised if it's been completely disintegrated, right? If someone was cremated or if someone was, even the worst of cases, was eaten by cannibals. How could a body be raised at that point from the dead? Our bodies will have some connection of similarity to our current bodies, but they'll have a different constitution. In other words, it'll be a new body that will not die. It's like the difference between our bodies as children and our bodies as adults. You see, it's, it's, it's got similarities to the bodies that we had as children, 
But it's a different constitution, isn't it? It's not the exactly the same. The same thing is going to happen with our resurrection bodies. It'll be a similar constitution or a similar uh, makeup, but a different constitution. The original features are still retained, but the but the but, but the components have changed in some way. Our bodies will still have similar features, and we know that because Jesus Christ had similar features when he was raised from the dead. So that means that that it is like growing a seed. When you put a seed in the ground, it doesn't bring forth the exactly the same grains that were in the seed. It brings forth uh, the same identity of what was a part of that, but but it's still going to be something that is different. So it'll be similar features to what we we have now. Remember Jesus, when He came back from the dead, He was recognized in at least three ways. One was by His voice. When I believe Mary was was crying outside the tomb, she was bent over and someone came up behind her and she heard the voice and as soon as she did, she recognized who it was. It was Jesus. So the voice that you have while on earth is the voice that you'll have in heaven. Jesus was also recognized by His appearance. When people saw Him, they recognized, oh, this is Jesus of Nazareth. He's raised from the dead. He was also recognized by His scars. And so, in that sense, I think we will be recognized in heaven by our appearance and by our voice. I don't think we personally will be recognized by our scars. I think Jesus' scars were a part of who He was, part of His identity that that set Him apart from all other creation. So if someone were burned, I think, in, in a house fire or something like that, I don't think that they're going to have those scars for all of eternity. But it would, I, I think our bodies will be similar to what we had when we were in our prime. And the reason I say that is because Jesus came back to life around the age that He died, apparently. He was, he was probably in His, his 30s, His early 30s, and I'm not just saying that because I'm in my early 30s, but, but, uh, but He came back to life around that time. So for an infant who dies, perhaps a, a child who was aborted or something, I believe that infant will come back to life as a, as a middle-aged type person, a person who's in his or her prime. And a hundred-year-old lady will also do the same thing. Um, there's no uh, proof for that, but I think by logic, we can, from seeing Jesus Christ, we can we can infer that that is the way that it will be. Now, what's so special about a believer's resurrection? I mean, aren't all people going to be raised? If you know you know the rest of the scriptures, you know that in Revelation it says that all people will be raised, even the unbelievers will be raised. So, what's so special about our bodies? What's so special about our resurrection if every single person is going to be raised to resurrection? Well, we're going to be raised, those who are trusting in Christ, those who have trusted in Christ, will be raised to to everlasting life. That is, they will be able to live on forever. But, But unbelievers will be raised to everlasting death. Now, we think of of people living in hell forever, but they're not really living in hell. They're actually dying in hell forever. It is a body that takes on mortality. It it takes on eternal mortality so that they can continually be dying. And so we will be different in that way and something to look forward to for for those of us who recognize the, 
the seriousness of sin and its consequences in this world, recognize the difficulties that come from from not being able to have perfect bodies now, it is a time to look forward to. It is a promise that we have in Scripture. So if, if resurrection is real, if, if, if there is life after death, and if these bodies will be so great and, and we will be able to live with God forever, how do we receive eternal life after death? How do we receive spiritual life after death? In order to have spiritual life after death, you have to receive spiritual life before death. So our, our physical bodies are, are designed to die. They're designed to show us the, the, um, the frailties of our sin and the consequences of our sin. And yet God is designed for our spiritual bodies to live on forever if we trust in Jesus Christ. So the alternative for us is is spiritual death. If, if we want to live for the world, if we want to, to, to do as much as we can with our physical bodies now, then we can be sure that, that our spiritual lives, uh, we won't have spiritual life. In fact, we'll have spiritual death. There are five things I want us to, to, to learn from this passage this morning and uh, as we consider these truths. Number one, Failure to understand the Bible does not always mean ignorance about the Bible. The Sadducees came to Jesus with an understanding of the Bible. They, they had a, a knowledge of it. They weren't ignorant of it. In fact, when Jesus quoted, the, God is the God of the living, when He said, I am the father of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, when, when He quoted that, I'm sure it rang in, in the Sadducees' minds. They recognized where that came from. But just to, to under, just to know the Scriptures, as John Piper says, we could know 10,000 facts about the Bible and not know God. It's not enough to just know facts. There has to be an understanding there that comes only through the power of the Spirit. So a failure to understand the Bible does not always mean ignorance of the Bible. You will find people who, who know the Scriptures inside and out, perhaps even better than you do, and yet are, are failing in their understanding of the Bible. They don't understand how those truths apply, how they, how they impact their lives. And so you'll find that some of these people will live like pagans, even though they know the Scriptures inside and out. It's not enough to simply know them as facts. Number two, we ought to be encouraged about our future relationships. Perhaps this passage is a little bit discouraging to you that, that they will neither marry nor be given in marriage because you have a spouse whom you love and you can't imagine having to lose that relationship in heaven. But I would like you to consider two things with regard to the relationships that you'll have in heaven. First of all, if you and your spouse know Christ, you will know your spouse in heaven. You will know them. They will know you. And then secondly, the joy of all relationships will be deeper than any relationship that you've ever had on this earth. And that's because all of those relationships will, will be void of sin and its consequences. There will be nothing that comes between our relationship with any other person in heaven. There will never be a frustration or, or an ill feeling towards anyone in heaven. 
because we will have not only immortal bodies, but we will have glorious, powerful bodies that will will not experience sin ever again. God will punish and and eliminate sin for for the rest of eternity after the thousand years. So if that doesn't encourage you, you say, well, I I really want to have this relationship with my spouse. Well, then perhaps you're thinking too narrow-mindedly. Perhaps your thinking is more like the Sadducees, that, that you're limiting the power of God and you don't recognize that He has the power to restore all present relationships and make them all even better than they are now. We need to accept the Scriptures by faith that this new relationship will be more wonderful than anything you've ever had. Number three, a failure to believe in and regularly think about the future resurrection could be proof that there there was no spiritual resurrection in your heart. If you don't think often of the resurrection of uh, of the final uh, the final state of us as humans, if you don't recognize the final state of our world and where uh, we are going, how Christ is coming to redeem this world and perhaps you've never had spiritual resurrection in your heart. Failure to believe in and meditate on these things is a failure to see the purpose of the afterlife, that God has this perfect society set up for you so that you can live among these people sin-free and among, most importantly, God, where God can be our God and and we can be His people. Perhaps it's a failure to to believe that God is faithful and reliable. And as a result, what it will do, I believe, is it will lead to earthly living. If we fail to think about the resurrection, the life after death that we have, then we will be like 1 Corinthians 15 talks about, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. You know, we live like the Sadducees or like this friend of mine that I mentioned. You know what? It's all going to be gone anyway, so what's the point? We just live our lives to the fullest we possibly can and we never think of the afterlife, never think of Jesus Christ and His purposes and what God's doing in our world. And so ultimately, a failure to believe in the resurrection of the body is is ground for us to, to live like the world, to live for the here and the now. Number four, God's desire for you is to develop a relationship that will continue for eternity. God is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. His relationship with you does not end when you die. It continues on forever. And so He desires to develop a relationship with you so that He can be your ruler, so that that you can live among His people and, and in His presence. Number five, this passage should encourage us to do more for Christ because we have confidence. Okay, We often call it hope in the resurrection, but when we think of hope, we often think of wish. But when we say hope, we mean confident expectation that God will accomplish this resurrection. We have hope in the life to come. We have, we have confidence in, in this promise that our body and soul will be rejoined one day. Let me conclude by reading 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look down to verse 51. We'll read through the end of the chapter. 
based on all these truths that we read about, notice when we get to verse 58 what our response should be. We're going to start in verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Let's bow together for prayer. Father, we're thankful for this promise of future resurrection. As I prayed earlier, our our bodies groan for the day when 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 they will be made perfect, when we won't have this battle with sin anymore. It is tempting, Lord, you know, for us to give up, to give in, to quit the race, to simply live for the here and now and follow along with the world. That in which we live. It is tempting. But we have promise of greater things. We have a promise of a better life. Our best life is not now. Our best life is still to come. And we pray that You'd help us to long for that day more and more. We pray that we would recognize the truth of Your Word and, and the greatness of our Savior who has provided the way for us to get there. And we pray that that we would be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in Your work. We would, we would not give up knowing that, that our toil is not in vain. That we do these things for a purpose. We do them for Your purpose. They are, they are not done in emptiness They are not done for no reason. We don't come to church every week simply simply for no purpose at all, but we do it for Your glory and to, to allow You to work in us so that we can be more and more like our Savior. And we look forward to that day when we will finally be changed, when our bodies will be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, when our perishable bodies will take on imperishable and where we will be able to enjoy the relationships, the fellowship, the perfect, sweet uh, group fellowship that we can have as we surround Your throne and sing praises to You for all of eternity for the great God that You are. Where we can spend our lives serving You, giving of ourselves and our resources, everything that we have to You without any hindrance of sin or sorrow or sickness or dying. Lord, You know our hearts and we pray that You'd help us to be strengthened in our resolve to serve You 
to keep in focus, in view, this, this eternity that is still to come. And when we think about it in those terms, our life is really just a vapor. It, it's just here for a little while and then it vanishes away. We pray that You'd help us to, to use it to, to the best of our ability by, by accomplishing Your purposes, by finding out what Your desires are and doing them. Perhaps there is someone here today who, who does not know Jesus Christ and I pray that You would help them to understand and to see their need for this spiritual resurrection so that they can have a bodily resurrection one day. Give them the, the joy and the grace to be able to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. May You be honored in how we respond to Your Word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.